Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 135. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King Lord, we are thankful that you have continued to carry us along during these difficult pandemic times, during these stressful, um, what do we say, political uh, times, during the uh, social uh, unrest in America, during the, the racial unrest, uh, during all the protests and all the confusion. Um, yet, Lord, in the midst of all of this seeming darkness, your word shines bright. Your son's uh, atonement is the anchor that holds us together, that, that keeps us uh, focused on, on what matters most. Um, we want to be people who have exemplary lives that, that, that are leading lives that are pleasing to you, um, demonstrating what it's like to have a faithful father, our God in heaven, who cares for us and, 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 and provides for us, protects us, uh, even despite all of um, the world falling down around us uh, when people look at us and they um, notice the difference in our lives and they should because of the power of the Holy Spirit in us we should be ready to give an answer and explain to them why we don't have the same types of, of um, stressful reactions that other people have um, Lord we should be different we should be um, above all that and yet still it's difficult sometimes to um, to keep our eyes focused on uh, what is truth, what matters, but nevertheless, Lord, we endeavor that that is the very thing that we will do. So help us, Lord, during times like this to recharge, to turn to you, to focus uh, our attention uh, on your words, on your promises, on your covenant-keeping power, uh, on the ability that you have promised to, to carry us and that you've promised that you never leave us nor forsake us. So bless us where we're at, uh, strengthen us as families, as communities, as individuals, and we'll be careful, Lord, to give the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me once again, week after week. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at a congregation in Thornton, Colorado, called the Harvest Congregation, Kehilatunuva, in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at graftedin.com. And from the homepage, um, you'll notice that we have a big a, kind of a banner right across the very top that says you can join us in person or online. If you're uncomfortable getting out and about uh, during this um, pandemic, then you can do either one. We are, of course, practicing social distancing and all of the safety guidelines if you 
care to join us at our local congregation. But if not, go to our website, scroll down to the section where you can see a thumbnail on the right that says Recent Sermons. It's on my screen right now. Pastor Mark is going through a sermon series coming out of Egypt, coming out of Egypt, coming out of our Egypt sin and shame. And it's an ongoing series. It's linked, of course, to Passover, this season that we're in. Don't forget that we're still in the counting the Omer season. We are working away from Passover to Pentecost. I like to remind myself that Passover is the season of freedom. It's the season where we are set free by the blood of the sacrificial lamb, which means we are set free by the blood of Messiah. And then as we count the Omer to Pentecost, to Shavuot, which is the recognition and the celebration of not only the giving of the Torah at Sinai, according to the rabbi's reckoning, but it's definitely the out, it's definitely the um, celebration of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of Messiah. So from Passover to Pentecost connects the, the dots with the, the, the um, um, counting the Omer does is I like to imagine that it connects. I don't just have to imagine this is just in the Torah is that Passover is the season of being set free by the blood of Messiah and Pentecost is the season of being filled with the words and the spirit of Messiah and that together forms the salvation picture and paradigm that I need to to rightly orient myself towards the ways of God and the words of God. And it's just a wonderful um, picture and a wonderful opportunity for us to join God as he is demonstrating the, the, the work and the um, intercession that Messiah has, that his son Messiah has done for us. And these two great events that are linked together by the counting of the Omer in the middle uh, accomplish that nicely. So don't forget to check out Mark's sermon there, coming out of our Egypt's of sin and shame. Likewise, I have my own uh, Torah teaching website at uh, www.tatesaytorah.com. I'd be delighted if you were to visit me online. Um, from the homepage, you'll instantly notice a lot of cluster, uh, a, a lot of links there in a cluster. Uh, those are most of the main categories of commentaries and series and things that I produce, um, including links to the newsletter, which I recommend that you become a subscriber to, all the weekly tour portions that I put out, Holy Convocations, podcasts, YouTube videos, short question series, Torah Observant, Galatians Commentary, discussions on the issues of Trinity, Hebrews, Romans 14, uh, information about the Harvest Congregation, uh, a search uh, 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 search tag, a search uh, option tool for my site, and then a donate button right there on the homepage. So just have at it there, click around, find out what you need there. Most of the commentaries are available in written, written format. Um, and these days, I'm turning a lot of my commentaries into iTunes podcasts, which are audio MP3 files. And at the same time, I'm turning a lot of my teaching into YouTube videos, which brings me to my next resource link. Head on over to youtube.com forward slash C for channel. Let me do this real quick, and then you'll be able to see. Um, you can see the address here. Uh, YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tate Torah Ministries. That's my home YouTube channel. I'd be um, delighted to be able to continue to minister to you through my YouTube resource. Uh, you can find me there online and um, click out, check out all the videos that I upload. I'm quite a busy bee, but you can see I've been uploading things just, I mean, almost every day. In fact, I think it is every day that I'm uploading something to YouTube. Maybe one time or twice I'm when I'm actually producing the videos, like tonight. Um, 
But other than that, I'm, I'm pretty busy uploading uh, uh, videos. So um, if you do visit my website, remember there are five my tour, my uh, YouTube channel. There are five things that I'd ask you to do. Number one, hit the subscribe button. Number two, hit the little bell for notifications after you've already subscribed. <laughs> Number three, hit the little thumbs up. Right, uh, make sure you're. I know you're going to like my content. I'm just absolutely certain you're going to love what I produce. So hit the thumbs up. Number four, um, hit the. Um, uh, option to share uh i'm sorry your option to um leave comments comment yeah uh hit the comments button or or start putting some comments in there and tell me what you like you know if you don't like it or you disagree um you can hit a thumbs down and tell me what you don't like i'm, I'm fine with that as well Just let's dialogue and then lastly um there's a little button that lets you share the content with other people like on your social media circles be sure to hit that button as well and that's the best way to just stay in the loop and be informed about all the information that i'm putting out these are the live internet studies that I bring to you every week, every Monday night. Let me just scroll down into this page and give you some of the logistics for this uh, study. Tonight we're on episode 135, as I mentioned earlier. The recording date for this recording in the USA is April 19th, 2021. And if you'd like to meet with us, you can follow along or you can join us every Monday evening from 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. Set your clock wherever you're at in the world against the USA Central Standard Time and you'll be able to um, join with us. The hour-long study is broken up into two segments. The first 30-minute segment is given over to the Romans 14 Unplugged Feasts and Fasts and Food. Oh my, we're in part 52 tonight. The second segment for 30 minutes is given over to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. We're in paper two out of three papers. Yahweh and Yeshua part 69 is our study tonight. And then we'll watch a featured YouTube video at the very end of our study tonight, uh, just before we close in prayer. And the video is Exodus 3, 14 and 15. This is my name forever. If you'd like to join us for the live studies, here's what you're going to need get access to Skype somehow, whether it's on your desktop or your laptop, um, then you don't need anything else. You, you just need Skype group link, which we'll talk about in a second. But otherwise, if you've got a smartphone or mobile device, uh, Android phone or iPhone or iPad or uh, you know Android tablet or something like that, or uh, I think you're going to need Skype installed on that device and you likely need to create an account, which both are free, so what's the big deal? The most important thing you're going to need is the group Skype link, the group link, uh, which is not posted on the internet anywhere because I don't want all kinds of spamming and robots uh, joining my um, uh, studies. Instead, you'll need to con contact me, but I'd be more than happy to send it to you. In that same um, paragraph there, you'll notice there's a link where you can shoot me an email. Otherwise, the easiest way is to drop, go to my website at tatesitor.com, drop down to the very bottom in that black section where you can see where it says Weekly Parsha Archives. Right? So go, go down to that section, the black section at the very bottom, look and click on the little icon on the right near the upper right that says top right that doesn't say anything it looks like an envelope click it that'll send me an email and just tell me that you're interested in joining the skype studies i'd be more than happy to see the little arrow pointing to it right now where it says email um i'd be more than happy to share the skype link with you and that's the way you can join us week after week and then the good news is once you have the skype link it doesn't change it's the same link week after week i just reuse it you just need to get it once and then once you've got an email you can just click it over and over again and that's the good news and then lastly, if the Lord is blessing you to be able to bless others uh, financially who are in difficult situations because of the pandemic or because of unemployment and, and the, you know, the furloughs and layoffs and things like that, um, I'm such an individual living in Hunter in South Korea. This is a great way to help me and my ministry. Uh, you can click the little yellow donate button and, and uh, donate securely. And of course, um, as I always mentioned, 
be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Okay, that'll do it for this part of the study. Let's move on now to the Romans 14 uh, study. Okay, let's turn now to Romans 14, Unplugged, Feasts and Fast and Food, Oh My. And let's take a few minutes to go through the um, material that I've got prepared for us tonight. Recall that I wrote a commentary that's available on my website at tatesatora.com entitled the Romans 14 Unplugged. And um, we're essentially working our way through the introduction and background uh, introduction, background, and historical audience type material. And so we're eventually going to work our way, if you look on my screen right now, we're eventually going to get to, as I scroll down, uh, we've read through most of this, but we eventually, uh, probably starting next week, we're going to start uh, go working our way through the final conclusions about um, this background material that I believe is necessary to better appreciate and understand um, Paul's designated audience in Rome and the um, impact of how his letter would have been important enough to uh, strengthen them, but at the same time challenge them, given the socio-religious dynamics of a community that's made up of Jews and Gentiles and how that all fits together because of what has taken place in history, uh, namely uh, because of the edict of expulsion of the Jews by Emperor Claudius, uh, because of the constant tensions between Rome and other religious groups and things like that. So that's where we're going towards. And what I'm doing is I've decided to pull in some supplementary material. We'll, we'll do this this week and then we'll be done with this part of that. And then we'll begin to look at perhaps either the conclusion here or I might do another little bit of an excursus into uh, the kingdom of God and how it's relevant for our Romans uh, studies as well. In the book of Acts, chapter 28, Luke has recorded an account where Paul finally makes his way to Rome. Right, So this is going to be after he has written the letter to them. He finally gets to Rome, and it's important that we look, stop and, and look at some of the details here because it's going to, again, provide some of the background necessary for us to understand um, Paul's framework, the way he's thinking, the way he's processing information and implementing his plans, um, particularly now that he's in Rome. Does he meet with the um, Roman people that he wrote to, the Roman communities? Uh, well, some of them come to meet him, as we're going to read here in a second. But more importantly, he actually goes and makes an effort to meet with the Jewish authorities. And this is kind of interesting, in my opinion, that if the church had supposedly made a complete break from the synagogue, like many commentators kind of lead me in that direction of believing that, that, that you know, after the expulsion from Rome, the Jews were kicked out of Rome, therefore the Roman communities the, are largely gentle ones. Of course, they're the majority now, but now suddenly I'm led to believe that there's no more Jew, really um, Jewish presence in Rome. Then how is it that five short years after the edict expired, you know, thankfully uh, at, uh, it expired and the Jews were able to um, come back in, and then five years later Paul makes his way to Rome, how is it that there's such large, sizable amounts of Jewish people that he's able to meet with communities and have open-door access to them, and they're interested in hearing from him? And uh, So it's kind of interesting, some of the dynamics. I'm not saying I have all the answers, but um, this is a good place for us to stop and give our attention for a moment as we fit... Uh, history parts of the Bible with other history parts. As we're reading through Romans, it's helpful for us to know that when, we're, when we get to Acts that Romans has already been written. Alright, so let's read some of this. 
I'm not going to read all of it, but I'll read some of this, and then I'm going to jump over to Dr. David Stern's commentary to this version of the Bible I'm reading from the CJB, as you can see on my screen right now. Dr. David Stern wrote the complete Jewish Bible, so we're going to read his commentary to some of the verses that we read. Let's see, he wrote a commentary to verses uh, 16 through 31, through the end of the chapter. I'm just going to read some uh, select verses, and then we'll read, or uh, we'll go down and um, uh, look at the commentary. Dr. Stern writes, well... This is his commentary interpretation. Um, he writes uh, in verse 15, The brothers there had heard about us and came as far as Appian Market and three inns to meet us. Of course, Paul's describing, uh, Luke is describing their uh, arrival at Rome. When Shaul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Verse 16, And when we arrived at Rome, the officer allowed Shaul to stay by himself, though guarded by a soldier. Keep in mind um, that we've talked about this in the past, that whenever you see the word brothers in the Bible, more often than not, at least in the apostolic scriptures part of your bible more often than not it's correct to assume that the word brothers is referring to the brotherhood of christians both jews and gentiles and messiah that's how it's most often used in the apostolic scriptures and that's how it came to be the preferred usage usage by the um scriptural writers such as paul but you have to remember in the back of your mind that there was an existing covenant community of brotherhood known as israelite that was already present when the apostolic scriptures begin to um, uh, come to light and be begin, begin to be written and history was being made right before our very eyes. Jewish people had been using the term brotherhood to refer to brother Jews and brother Israelites for thousands of years prior to any Gentile Christian church, as I'm using air quotes with my fingers, coming on the scene and kind of co-opting the, the word brotherhood. So I think that when Paul writes brothers, that at the forefront, he knows that there's brothers of Jews and Gentiles who are Christians, and he uses the word that way, the Greek word Adelphos or Adelphon or Adelphoi, depending on what you know, plural, singular, um, whatever um, uh, inflection that we're looking at. But I think he knows that immediately he refers to Jews and Gentiles in Messiah, brothers in Christ. But in the back of his mind, and sometimes in the, even in the overarching context, the over kind of umbrella type context, the larger, wider context, he knows that the brotherhood of of Israelites is also in view because I believe Paul understood remnant Israel to be nested or situated or kind of tucked into, um, enveloped by greater, larger, national, albeit unbelieving and stumbling Israel. Nevertheless, remnant Israel is still part of the same tree, the family tree of Abraham, as unbelieving national Israel is. They're both on the same tree. Right? And Gentiles have been grafted from their wild olive spot into the cultivated olive spot. They've crossed over from where they were into where they are now. Go back and read Ephesians chapter 2, and you'll, where Paul talks about the near and far language. Right, Those of you who were once far off have now been brought near. So I believe the smaller brotherhood, the Jews and Gentiles and Messiah, the Christian brothers, have been brought near to the larger brotherhood, the covenant brotherhood of Israel, national Israel. And that's always in Paul's view as well. That's important as we're reading through the book of Romans. Uh, Dr. Stern continues. Let's read a few more verses. In verse 17, uh, he says, After three days, Shaul called a meeting of the local Jewish leaders. Look at this. When they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers. Yeah, there we have it right there. Now, he's using brothers in the larger, wider sense. Brother Jews, brother Israelites. Now, could some of them all have also been believers at this point? Yes, a brother Jew who's a brother Christian is a brother Christian Jew. A little bit of uh, ambiguity going there, right? A little bit of equivocation with the word there then. But just don't get too confused. But 
keep in mind that it's important that Paul wants the smaller brotherhood, the 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 um, more concentrated, more immediate brotherhood of Christians to never lose sight of their place on the olive tree among the existing um, Abrahamic family brotherhood of Israelites. They're not two separate groups, and of course they're separated by their faith in Messiah, but they're not separated by their um, profession of faith in the one God, their monotheistic expression of faith, and in many cases their their um, obedience and loyalty to Torah and their shared access to the scriptures of Israel. Remember, the apostolic scriptures were still being written and being um, formulated in the first few centuries. Even by the time of Paul's writing here in, in Romans, which is probably like the mid-50s of his day, there weren't other letters uh, in, in, in bulk that he could perhaps even turn to other than the Tanakh, the scriptures of Israel. I don't think he had access to, you know, Peter's letters and, and James' letter and, um, you know, John hadn't even written the book of Revelation yet. You know, that's not going to be for some 40 years down the road after the destruction of the temple in the 90s. Uh, the destruction was in 70, but the, the John is exiled in the 90s. So um, there was no New Testament, right? It's like James Trim is fond of saying there are two things the New Testament church didn't have. There was no New Testament and there was no church. <laughs> they didn't have a New Testament and they didn't have a church. So Paul's writings are still being circulated. And, you know, and did the Romans have the letter to the Galatians? Did the Galatians have the letter to the Philippians? Did the Philippians have the letter to the Colossians? Did the Colossians have the letter to the Thessalonians, et cetera, et cetera? Did all the communities that Paul wrote to have the other letters uh, circulated amongst themselves? Hard to imagine that they did. So sometimes what they got from Paul was uh, inspired, and at the same time, what they were grounded upon was the Tanakh, the scriptures of Israel. So it's important to see the smaller brotherhood of Christians still connected vibrantly to the larger brotherhood of Israel. That's, I think, important, national Israel. And that's why I keep highlighting this uh, particular um, feature. So after three days, call, Shaul called a, brother, a meeting with the brothers. And all, he says to them, although I've done nothing against either our people or the traditions of the fathers, I was made a prisoner in Yudhishalayim and handed over to the Romans. And so they're going to um, listen to what Paul has to say. And we're going to cut to the quick here. Interestingly, uh, or germane to our study, is the idea that he's talking to them these uh, uh, Jewish leaders, and they talk about, um, look at look at this section right here, and starting in verse 21, they say to him, we've not received any letters about you from Yehuda, and none of the brothers who have come here, fr come from there, has reported or said anything about you. So this could still be brother Christians who'd come from Judah uh, during, um, you know, after Pesach, uh, after Shavuot, and carried the the, the good news from from Israel over into Rome and began to establish more Roman communities. Perhaps that's what they're talking about. But it's more likely that it includes also national leaders who had not yet made this profession of faith. And so Paul still enjoys um, fellow, some sort of fellowship with them, some sort of uh, support from them, we could imagine. I don't know how strong that would be. But look at verse 22. But we, these are the leaders speaking, we do not think it would be... Um, I'm sorry, let me back up to the finish, uh, the verse 21 and the, uh, the second clause. None of the brothers who have come from there has said, has, said, has reported or said anything bad about you. Okay, so that's good. You know, Paul was a messianic leader, and yet these uh, Jewish leaders in Rome, if they are indeed um, unbelieving Israel, right, stumbling Israel, non-Christian Jews, they're saying that they hadn't heard anything bad about them. Well, that's good. That's good. I mean, because Paul elsewhere is a troublemaker, so to say. But look at verse 22. But we do think it would be appropriate to hear your views, 
right? They're giving them an open door from you yourself, for we all know about this sect. For all we know about the sect is that people everywhere speak against it. What sect do you suppose they're talking about? Well, it's obvious to me that it must be the sect of the Christians, known as the Way or the Nazarenes. We can read about this earlier in the book of Acts as well. The sect of the Way. Paul says that he belongs to this particular sect. And uh, most important is that it is a sect of Judaism. Christianity in the first century had not completely broken away from the Jewish mother that birthed her. Not yet. They would later on down the road as we get farther into the, the first century and the particularly more pronounced as we get into the second, third, and fourth centuries and by the fifth century. And so, I mean, it's just... It's just a complete separation. The Jews, the synagogue, and the church have completely separated, like we have them now today. Rabbinic uh, Judaism is on one side of the street, and Christianity is on the other side of the street, and never the twain shall meet, right? So, so to say. But in Paul's day, they were still closely enough connected that Christianity was seen and both inside and out, right, by by people from the inside, Jew and Gentile, Christians. And the synagogue communities and people from without, such as Roman, Roman authorities and, and Greek authorities and other people groups, both the insiders and the outsiders of, of this religion known as Judaism slash Christianity, uh, saw Christianity as not overtaking Judaism, but as an offshoot, a branch of Judaism. And, and they were a, what I like to call tr transcultural Judaism. They, they were a Judaism for the Gentiles, but it was still a form of Judaism. They shared the same scriptures of Israel, albeit they were starting to form their own apostolic scriptures and, and things like that. Their belief in God was identical. He's the one God. Um, their dependency upon the Holy Spirit, uh, their understanding of the covenants that were given to Israel and the um, um, accessibility to the blessings of God were all identical with Judaism. Um, the difference is, of course, is that they believed in Jesus as, the, as that long-awaited uh, Messiah who's going to atone for their sins uh, rather than believing in some political Messiah. But it's important for us as we're studying the book of Romans that Romans was written when the Christianities were still connected closely enough to the Judaisms that there was support going back and forth with one another. There were Christians who, who or Gentiles who had access to the synagogue and unbelieving uh, stumbling Jews or people who were in a position where they're investigating the messiahship of Jesus would have had, had access to the small home groups that were cropping up here and there and everywhere else. So that's important for us. That's the point I was trying to bring up. And then, of course, um, Paul's going to... Um, I'll read this last uh, passage here, and then we'll turn to Dr. Stern's commentary. Paul's going to wit begin witnessing to them. Look at verse 23. This is why I think there was at least a sizable number of non-Christian Jews. Uh, Luke records for us in verse 23, So they arranged a day with him, right, these Jewish leaders, and came to his quarters in large numbers. From morning until evening he explained the matter to them, giving a thorough witness about the kingdom of God and making use of both the Torah of Moshe and the prophets to do what? To persuade them about Yeshua. So he must have known... <clears throat> about their sentiments regarding this messianic figure. Was he the one that we've been waiting for? Is he the one who's going to atone for our sins? Or is he just another political leader who's going to um, uh, deliver us from the clutches of you know, big bad, bad brother Rome? 
Uh, verse 24 says some were convinced by what he said. And verse 25 says while others refused to believe. They left off disagreeing among themselves. Um, it says in the last uh, part of verse 25, they left off disagreeing amongst themselves after Shaul had made one final statement. The Ruach HaKodesh spoke well in, in saying to your fathers through Yeshua the prophet. And then from there, he, we know he goes off into this um, kind of this rebuke about, you know, you guys just don't get it. You don't understand um, what God is doing. And then the kicker is in verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Goyim and they will listen. And we know that that's kind of the, the inflammatory statement that always upsets national Israel. When you're bringing in the, the, the role of the Gentiles, right? When you're throwing around the G word, right? He dropped a G bomb there in the, in the presence of Jews. He mentions the Goyim or the Gentiles, right? The, 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 the Gerim in, in another uh, form of the word, kind of a synonymous term. Uh, the Gentiles is a heated term among nationalistic Jews who think that the Torah and access to God and the national promises are re um, reserved for Jewish-only uh, people groups or those who have attached themselves to Israel through the conversion process that turns them, you know, the proselyte conversion that turns them into Jews. Uh, the, you know, the Torah is for Jews only, Holy Spirit is for Jews only, um, you know, membership into Israel is for Jews only, that type of kind of restricted nationalistic um, viewpoint that was present in Paul's day. A viewpoint that Paul himself soundly rejected after coming to faith in Messiah and reading through the Tanakh and beginning to understand how that the Abrahamic promises was not restricted to Jewish identity only, but rather was extending itself to the Gentiles via genuine faith in God through his Messiah. You know, it's the, 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 the those who are far off are being brought near through faith in Messiah, not through a conversion vehicle. So this is going to uh, propel us into appreciating the book of Romans, a particular chapter 14, as we're talking about who are the weak in faith that Paul mentions at the very beginning of Romans 14. Are they Jewish Christians who are still holding on to Torah? Are they Gentile Christians who are um, attracted to Torah observance? Or are they, in fact, some other group, perhaps maybe uh, disenfranchised Jews who had already been kicked out of Rome and now have been brought back, and yet they're looking for and investigating these claims of Jesus' messiahship? Um, they're weak in a social sense that they're the minority, Right? The Jews are the minority in the church at Rome, uh, the churches in Rome. But um, not just being the minority and the disenfranchised, they would also be weak in their faith in Messiah, uh, be weak in their faith in Messiah as, the, um, as Yeshua being that central figure. They would be weak in identifying that Jesus is that Messiah. They perhaps had a messianic expectation, and many of them even had uh, genuine faith in God, obviously, and a loyalty to Torah. That's without saying. But I believe that when Paul calls the weak in faith those who are important to this group in Romans 14, I think he's actually referring to Jews who are in the process of laying hold of faith in Jesus as that personal Messiah. Their, their loyalty to Torah doesn't make them weak. Their faith in God doesn't make them weak, and their association with the Gentile Christians certainly doesn't make them weak. None of that is, is described as weakness. The weakness is their lack of faith in Messiah, and I think that's proven by the context of, if we go all the way back to, say, Romans 4, in this same letter, Paul uses a, an equivalent, um, something similar, the weak in faith, same in the Greek, uh, but it's used kind of like an adjectival type sense rather than a noun. But nevertheless, it's used to describe Abraham's faith in God. Abraham was not weak in faith, and meaning he did not waver in his belief in Messiah. He held that, that faith. So it's using kind of a negative sense there to describe something that Abraham did not fall into. But 
uh, uh, over here in Romans 14, Paul recognizes that there are those among us in our church groups, our small groups, that are still investigating this matter. Is Jesus the Messiah that I've been waiting for? Will he atone for my sins? And they're open to that idea. They're not hostile. Right? So let's read about this openness. That's the, that's the context that we want to read real quick in this section of commentary from Dr. Stern. The open and willingness attitude of these Jewish leaders to receive Paul into their um, meetings and let listen to what he has to say about Messiah and many of them deciding, yes, this makes sense. We believe this Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. He will atone for our sins personally. And so they weren't hostile to that idea. And that just all the more um, tells me that there's a, there's a strong possibility that the weakened faith does not mean Jews or Gentiles who keep keeping who are keeping Torah even though they believe in Jesus. That's not their weakness. Their weakness is they just haven't decided that Jesus is the Messiah. They need a little bit more persuasion. They need to hear it from someone like Paul. And if that's the case, then the Romans at the Roman communities in Romans 14 uh, need to also do what Paul did here that we're going to read about in the Book of Acts. They need to continue to reach out to the Jewish communities and witness to them so they can bring them over into a belief in Messiah. In Dr. Stern's commentary here, uh, starting in verse 17 uh, with his highlighting, you can see where I've highlighted here, it says the concluding passage of the book of Acts contains very important material for understanding the relationship between Judaism and Christianity, Gospel and Tanakh, Messianic and non-Messianic Judaism, Jewish and Gentile Christians. Stern continues, the conclusion is that Shaul had a very successful evangelistic ministry among the Jewish communities of Rome, and that entire synagogues became Messianic. Wow, isn't that fantastic? It is one of the high, position, high points of Messianic Jewish history. We don't know exactly um, the extent to what Dr. Stern is suggesting here, but it must have surely been strongly possible because of, of Paul's um, dealing with them, you know, specifically about Messiah. And uh, history, unfortunately, just hasn't given us all the details of how this played out, other than what we have here in the, in the Bible, in the, in the book of Acts. Let's continue. In verse 17 itself, um, uh, Dr. Stern writes, uh, speaking about, commenting about the, where the verse says, the local Jewish leaders, right, in the book of Acts. In his three days, Shaul had arranged with the brothers in the Roman community, of whom he knew many, to draw up a list of Jewish community leaders, for he would quickly have ascertained what these leaders later said themselves, that they knew very little about the gospel. So he sees an opportunity to witness to them. Thus, Shaul saw an evangelistic opportunity. The believers in the Roman congregation had apparently not done much to evangelize the 10,000 or more Jews living in Rome, according to Encyclopedia Judaica. There was at least 10,000. There, there might have even been more. Notice that um, let me just pause and interject that if the the um, edict with the expulsion of the Jews right around that time period, right before Paul wrote Romans, was accurate, e even if it, all the Jews got kicked out, which I kind of downplay that, I don't think all of them were expelled, but even if they were, isn't it nice to know that five short years later when the edict expired and the Jews were allowed to come back in, that five years after that, so we've got five years from the time of the, right, the expulsion lasted five years, right, from let's say around 49 to about 55 or 54, somewhere around there, Paul's writing right there in the mid-50s, and then five years later in the 60s, right around 60, he's in Rome, so it's, you know, 10 years from the bookend, from the bookend of when the edict started to the uh, time that Paul actually makes it to Rome. Isn't it interesting to know that in that short amount of time in the ancient world, that that many Jews had either A, remained in Jew in, in Rome, in other words, I, I think they didn't get kicked out to begin with, or even if they all did get kicked out, 
that many Jews were able to make it back in and get established and start setting up community, setting up shop again, so to say, and, and reconstruct their lives after it had been, um, uh, you know, sort of abruptly uh, disrupted because they had to suddenly get up and get out of Rome. All right, so that's the background. Um, Paul sees an, an opportunity here to evangelize them, to reach out to them. In fact, part of his, his rebuke in Romans, read chapters 9 through 11, it, to the Gentile Christian uh, groups is that you guys have <clears throat> are entertaining this wrong-headed notion that you don't need the Jewish mother that, would, that birthed you anymore. You know, you're the daughter known as Christianity. And yet, you're so high-minded and lofty and, and, and thinking that, you know, hey, we've replaced those natural branches. We don't need them anymore. We grafted in Johnny-come-lately branches. Perhaps we don't need them anymore. Perhaps God is turning to us. Paul do doesn't want them to have that attitude, right? He's rebuking them. Uh, or, well, he's not really rebuking them, but he's strongly admonishing them, hey, you know, go back and read Romans chapter 11 all over again. Don't boast against the branches. I'm paraphrasing there. You need to be fearful because if God didn't spare the natural branches because of their their unbelief and their 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 um wrong-headed notions towards uh, God's plans and purposes, then He won't spare you either when you're being brought into this community of faith. So uh, the family of Abraham uh, is 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 um, held together cohesively by its um, shared beliefs and its support for one another. Let's keep reading Dr. Stern. Perhaps they, speaking of these Jewish Christians in Rome, perhaps they wish to avoid the sort of persecution some of them might have already experienced in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, when they came to faith at or shortly after Shavuot, or after the martyrdom of Stephen, or the persecution alluded to in chapter 18 might have shocked them into silence. So, um, whatever the case is, Paul's going to reach out and start uh, evangelizing these Jewish people. Verse uh, commentary to verses 21 and 22. These Jewish leaders were very open-minded, more so than today's usually are, right? Obviously, the poison of rabbinic Judaism has clouded the mind and the hearts of many Jewish people today, so much so that they don't even want to hear about Jesus or the New Testament or Apostle Paul or any of that type of talk. You know, as soon as you start bringing in the J word, you drop the J bomb, right? You mention Jesus to them, then they just shut down, right? And that's because of of the mindset of that rabbinic Judaism, the poison of um, uh, what we today would recognize as anti-missionary um, uh, kind of uh, out, uh, outreach and, and counter-missionary uh, type of um, tactics that are used to scare uh, Jewish people away from uh you know, reading and studying the New Testament or having discussions with Christians about Jesus and things like that. But these Jews in Paul's day were still open-minded. There wasn't no, there wasn't any rabbinic Judaism that was poisoning their minds. Of course, they still had their traditions that, that often um, uh, got in the way of things, right? Often clouded the issue. They had their, 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 their um, uh, stumbling blocks. But we go on to read, uh, Dr. Stern says, the situation in Rome was different from the others described in the book of Acts, right? We had rebel-rousing Jews that would often um, oppose Paul so violently that they would take oaths to not eat, sleep, or drink until Paul was dead. You know, that's that's demonic, right? Let's just put it on the table and call it what it is. That's demonic. Um, but these Jews weren't like that. They were... Um, the, the, the community here, Dr. Stern says, very quickly, the non-Messianic Jewish community took... Um, in uh, describing the ones in Acts, they took a, a, a hostile position against the Messianics. Somehow, 
Stern uh, comments, the Roman believers avoided such a clash with the non-Messianic synagogues so that at Shaul's arriving, they were willing to listen and not immediately um, be opposed to them. And uh, he goes on to talk about how that this, uh, this is Dr. Stern, talks about how the low, large numbers of local leaders was very unique in uh, world history when it comes to evangelizing Jews. Um, and uh, I'm going to skip over some of this just for the sake of time. You can go back and read this on your own if you own Dr. Stern's commentary, which I, I, I recommend you get it. Uh, it's not the most thorough uh, commentary out there, but it has its advantages, has its pros and cons to it. But let me um, uh, scroll over to the other page here and uh, read some of this um, uh, because we're going to develop this as we go. Let me read these last two paragraphs and that will conclude our study for tonight. In, in verse 24 and 25, Dr. Stern makes these comments. These are comments to Acts chapter 28 of verses 24 and 25. Some were convinced by what he said while others refused to believe. He talks about um, the Greek words behind what we read in the English, which I'm going to skip over. He simply says, of the large numbers of Jewish leaders um, that were present, some were persuaded and some disbelieved or refused to believe. The sum and the sum are, cor are correlative of comparative size comparable size of more or less the same order of magnitude. What may reasonably be concluded, therefore, is that the whole leadership of Rome's Jewish community was well represented by the large numbers, and that a sizable portion of them, though not necessarily half, were persuaded of the truth of Messianic Judaism then and there. That is why Dr. Stern says that the meeting must be unique in world history. He knows of no other reported instance of sizable proportion of a major Jewish community's leadership coming to faith in the gospel in one Day. And that, of course, would be um, extremely unique. And this is all the more uh, the importance for us to appreciate the challenges between the social religious groups in Romans 14, those who are weak in faith, which I purport is, uh, are Jewish who haven't believed in Jesus yet. They are in a position where they need to continue to interact with Jewish Christians, either at the synagogue level or at the small home group level, so that they can come to this decision of who Jesus is, so that they can experience this revival that Paul's describing and that Dr. Stern's recognizing here in the book of Acts is going to take place a little later. Romans 14 is still five years earlier than what we're reading about in Acts chapter 28. But it doesn't mean that the opportunity isn't there. If the Romans, the strong in faith that we read about in Romans 15, like Paul himself, the Jews and Gentiles who have believed in Jesus, if the strong would continue to have an evangelistic outreach towards Jewish people and try to bring them in rather than having this high-minded attitude that, hey, we don't need you anymore. God doesn't need you anymore. He's replaced you. You're fallen. You've been broken off the tree, right? You're the broken off branches. We're the new Israel, blah, 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 blah. If they can um, resist that that idea, that, that demonic attitude as well, humanistic attitude, wrong-headed notion, and instead get on board with the idea that God has not forsaken Israel, God has not given up on them, his callings and, uh, um, what did we say, the callings and the, the giftings are irrevocable, right? Um, all Israel will be saved when Jews and Gentiles join together and praise God together, right? We see that in Romans chapter 15, uh, near the very beginning. These are themes that Paul's working from. He knows that the overall scope of salvation history includes an outreach from Jews to Gentiles first, and then from Gentiles back to Jews. So that in the end, the two groups coming together as one, the one new man, um, is brought together in Messiah. So let's continue and close tonight's study with this final paragraph from Dr. Stern. So they left disagreeing amongst themselves. That's the, what uh, we read in 
Acts chapter 28. Here's what Dr. Stern has to say by way of his commentary. The gospel properly proclaimed always causes division because those who believe it and those who do not have that those who do not have different world outlooks. And he makes a reference back to Acts chapter 20, as well as Matthew 10 and John 7. And you can look at those passages in the Gospels, and I think they're referring to, without looking at them ourselves, without, I think they're referring to those times when Yeshua talks about, I did not come to being peace, but a sword, right? The, the Gospel is a sword of division, and it pierces the heart and causes people with um, an inclination and a view where, where their heart is already inclined to receive uh, God's good news and understand that they are in a position where they need to be um, saved, then the gospel to them is good news and they welcomely, openly embrace it and welcome it and turn from sin as the Holy Spirit begins to work in them. They make that decision of faith in, in Jesus. But at the same time, that same gospel offends so many people turns them off, right? It it exposes their sinful thoughts and behaviors and it demands of them that they change. It challenges them to do a 180 degree turn from sin and turn to God. And because they're so um, jaded towards uh, things of God and things of the Spirit and towards truth and towards um, righteousness, because they're so poisoned in their own mind and, and futile in their thinking and uh, deceived by the prince of the power of the air himself, by demonic forces, then their their eyes are darkened and, and the gospel offends them and they turn away from it and they attack it and they, they speak out against it and they want nothing to do with Jesus and with God and, and they're just very... Um, troubled people, or very angry people, or, or at the very least, they're just very disinterested people. Sometimes it's their their disinterest comes across as silence. I'm not saying that everybody who's who's unsaved is a troubled person. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm saying that um, they just don't want to hear what what the gospel has to say. There's well, you know, that doesn't interest me. What do I need Jesus for? You know, I'm I'm perfectly fine in my with my own uh, moral uh, belief system, and you know, I don't need God to tell me what to do. And you know, I'm doing fine on my own. I'm perfectly fine, right? I never hurt anybody, right? Uh, why would God punish me and send me to hell just for, for you know, a few bad things? You know, I stole a candy bar when I was a kid. You know, God's not going to send me to hell for that. So people think that way, and so the gospel causes division. Stern concludes: since those who were persuaded were leaders, they surely returned to their synagogues and communicated the gospel themselves, so that in due time especially with the Shaul's continued teaching over the next two years, entire synagogues must have become Messianic, like he said. And I'm going to do a little bit more research myself to see if I can find any historical um, uh, accounts of these Messianic communities that were, uh, that that were, uh, that came about as a result of Paul's evangelistic mission here uh, in the end of the book of Acts. A people movement took place in Rome, Dr. Stern says, a movement in which entire families and communities were one to the Lord, Yeshua, the Messiah. Though we're not told this directly, and I agree with Stern, it, it doesn't show up this way, but, but he says the indications are present. And what are those indications? Let's close off with these. And an openness to the gospel rather than a predisposition against it. That's first and foremost. Leaders being persuaded, that's there as well. Substantial numbers being involved, right? That's obviously to be understood. If we have leadership leading the way they should, then the people are going to follow a broad community participation, right? These are just like dominoes falling into place when you have this type of revival. And then lastly, but not least, respect for the, for the evangelist, Paul himself, and spirit-blessed ministry. So this would have been a wonderful uh, time uh, to be um, in Rome in the Jewish community, and what would those Romans at chapter 14 
have said then about Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus, they're weak in faith, becoming strong in faith now as they place their faith in Jesus the Messiah. They continue their loyalty to Torah. Remember, keeping Torah is not a sign of weakness to begin with. So just get that notion out of your head when you're thinking weak in faith, Romans chapter 14. Uh, keeping Torah, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever in Jesus, is not a sign of weakness. There's nothing in the Torah that indicates that that is the, the a paradigm that we should be operating under. Therefore, it's, I believe, a bad way to interpret Romans chapter 14. I think this perspective where Mark Nanos is championing with the weak in faith are unbelieving Jews who are still open to receiving the gospel, just like these ones in Acts chapter 28. I think that's a very workable historical thesis to um, um, continue to investigate, and I'm going to continue um, uh, working from that because it seems to fit the overall historical context better than the idea of Jews and Gentiles keeping Torah as seen as weakness. That just doesn't even fit with history as well. And that'll do it for our look at Romans chapter 14 unplugged, feast and fast and food, oh my. Let's turn um, next to our um, study in the Shema, which is uh, discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn now to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. And let's go through the verses that we're going to be looking at tonight. We're going to be talking about how the idea of the attributes and actions of God can be observed as we read different Bible passages and compare them against one another. And in the comparison, we're not seeking to uh, contrast so that we can say, well, in one passage, God does this, but in another passage, Jesus does this, and therefore, there's no way that they can be the same being. Instead, we're of the understanding that the Bible is one unified whole. It's written by one author, and it arrives at the same goal by demonstrating the fact that there's one God who is nevertheless complex in his unity. So when we read in one passage that, for instance, God is the creator, like in Genesis 1-1, and then we get to John 1, chapter 1, um, and we read about um, Jesus being the one who creates all things, it's not meant to cause us to come to some sort of conclusion that one verse is compared and competing itself, contrasting against the other, so that we're trying to figure out which one of these beings is the creator. Instead, it's meant to give us a more complete picture of this idea that there is one God who creates, and yet in his complexity, Jesus, Yeshua, the Word made flesh, has the creative ability because he's his, he shares the same nature as God. So two separate persons in view, yet one being in view. So with that logic behind this um, chart that Karm put together, let's look at God searching the heart. We're going to jump through three or four passages. Karm only has three in their list, but I pulled in an extra one for God. Under God the Father, we have Jeremiah 17, verse 10. And along with that, I'm going to pull in um, Romans chapter 8, uh, I think around verse 24, 25, I can't remember. Under the uh, column for Jesus, uh, uh, God the Son, we'll look at Revelation 2.23 about how Yeshua is the one who searches the heart using the similar verbiage that we find uh, related to God. And then lastly, in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10, we'll notice how that the Holy Spirit, it doesn't say that he searches the heart, it says that he searches all things, which of course must include the heart in the all things. So let's jump right into it. The first uh, passage that we're going to be looking at in exploring the Shema, this study here, as I mentioned, is Karm's listing of Jeremiah 17. And they have verse 10, but I want to back up to verse 9 to get the running context. 
In verse 9 of Jeremiah 17, this is a familiar passage. Reread right here on my screen, you can see it. It reads, The heart is deceitful above all things and, des and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And um, this is the, the, the condition of man, right? The heart is deceitful. It deceives even its owner. I mean, sometimes I think, this is what I should do, and this is what I'm, I've set out to do, and let's do it. And then, before I know it, I'm up to no good and doing the exact opposite thing that I said I was going to do. The heart has deceived me. Who deceived me? Did God deceive me? No. Did my wife deceive me? No. No, my heart deceives me. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Sometimes even I can't understand why I do the things I don't want to do and why I don't do the things that I know I should be doing. I sound like the Apostle Paul in uh, Romans chapter 7, don't I? It's within that context that the writer, Jeremiah, writes next in verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God tests the heart. God searches the heart. This phrase, I, the Lord, search the heart. He tests the mind too, but just for now, because of the um, English word search, that's what we're looking at. How uh, Remember the, um, the list, uh, sorry, didn't mean to jump over there. The list, uh, God searches the heart. Um, the phrase, I, the Lord, search the heart in the Hebrew, it's going to show up right there. The Hebrew says, Ani Adonai Choker Lev. Choker Lev. This Hebrew word right here, Choker. Let's look at that just briefly. What does it mean that God searches the heart? When we turn to the concordance tool that I'm using here at BibleHub.com, the root word for choker is the root word chakar, Strong's number 2713. And it just shows it as to search. Uh, the definition, to search, very simple. The exhaustive concordance um, uh, from the NSB, NESB version lists some more um, nuances here. Ascertain, examine, find, um, investigate, to ponder, to probe. Um, to see through, to taste, things like that. We could drop all the way down to the um, Strong's Exhaustive Concordance right here and see also that some of the nuances of this word hakar is to find out or to make, to search out, to seek out, to sound, to try. So very basic word when it comes to searching and seeking and trying things. And indeed, if we jump over to the Greek of the same passage, the Septuagint, uh, it reads, I, the Lord, search the heart. That's the, sorry about that. That's the um, English rendering. Uh, kind of like a KJV rendering. Here we have our Hebrew once again. But interesting by comparison is if we drop down a little bit further and look at this Septuagint rendering, we have the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew. Ego kurias et hazon kardias. Of course, the word for heart is cardias, and that's where we get our English word um, cardiac, cardias, same um, sounding there, you can hear it. But of interest for us, for our study, it's this Greek word etazon. Etazon is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew that we looked at earlier, which is, um, let me scroll back up to it, which is right here, which is uh, hakar. So what is the uh, what is the, the, the understanding of this Greek word etazon? Well, first let's look at the English translation. Just down below it, we can see the translation that many have rendered. There's two translations here. One is from um, this author's translation, and the other is, I think, Brenton's is one of the more popular. I can't remember which one is which. But um, 
the uh, rendering of the Greek word etazon is the English word try. Well, notice it doesn't say search. So let's look at some of the nuances behind, or the range of meanings behind this Greek word atazon. If I were to click this link right here, this is what I would end up with. Root word etazo, etazo in the Greek. And the range of meanings that are supplied are to test, to inquire, investigate, to um, subject to a trying experience, to examine, to make inquiries into, to afflict, to chasten, to rebuke. Doesn't necessarily always mean to search. Uh, could mean, like I said, to test or to subject to a trying experience. So there's a wide range of meanings attached to this particular Greek word, but suffice to say, for now, as we're looking at this passage, God searches the heart, and he can do so because he above everyone else, even the owner of a heart, he alone has the power and the ability to see inside the heart and indeed to look inside the mind, like the verse talks about, inside the mind of the individual. Why? Because he is very God. He is full deity. Okay, let's look at the next uh, set of verses. This is um, one that's not actually on Karm's chart, uh, like the Jeremiah passage. It's simply one that I decided to pull in on my own, and it's from the book of Romans. It's still speaking about God the Father and the fact that he is the one who searches the heart, like we read in Jeremiah. Look what Paul says about um, God the Father. Starting in Romans chapter 8, let me back up to verse 26, and it's verse 27 that talks about God. But in the context of the, um, the reality that we as believers have in the Holy Spirit being our uh, intercessor, look at this verse. Romans 8, 26, starting right here reads, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So Paul lets us know that we've got this intercessor, the Holy Spirit, right? He's the one that has been sent um, from the Father, sent from the Son, to remind us of the words of the Master, to uh, bring all things to our remembrance, to comfort us. Remember, we've looked at this in other studies. He's the paraclete, the 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 the, the um, comforter, uh, the one who comes and is with us constantly, and he's going to help us in our own inability to pray how we ought to express our 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 concerns and thoughts to the Father, and yet at the same time, notice what Paul says in the very next verse. And he who searches hearts, who would that be? Is that the Holy Spirit? Well, yes, in one sense it is. We'll look at that a little bit later on in our study when I get to the um, uh, the First Corinthians passage. But um, uh, in in more uh, to the point of God the Father's role. It's God who searches hearts. I believe that what Paul had in mind when he's writing this passage in Romans is he already knew about the places in the Tanakh that talk about God searching a heart. We'll look at some of those uh, references here in a moment. But God is the one who searches the hearts, and the passage goes on to say, uh, God searches hearts, uh, and let, me just, let me just read it, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, right? God's searching the heart, and the Spirit is interceding for us, and God knows 
uh, the heart and what is the mind of the spirit. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit. Why? Because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So God's very spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, which is also God's very spirit, searches hearts. And therefore, there's this um, uh, seamless communication between us praying to God the Father who searches the hearts and at the same time the Holy Spirit is interceding for us uh, helping us to communicate to God the Father of which God the Father searches the hearts of us and he knows the mind of the Spirit. Notice how the two are working together. He who searches hearts, that would be the Father searching our hearts, and he is one, the same one who knows what is the mind of the Spirit. So. Um, just more verses to uh, clarify this idea of this this being that we serve known as God, even in his complexity of God the Father and God the, the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk about the Son and put it all back together when we get to the end of the study, God is the one who has unique attributes that can only be performed by he himself. So if the Spirit of God or if God the Son, as we're going to look at later, couldn't search the heart, are they truly deity? Do they have full divinity? Well, I wouldn't think they would. I mean, I'm a human. I'm not divine. I'm not deity. And heck, most of the time I can't even search my own heart. What did we read back in Jeremiah and learn in the previous uh, 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 passage, the, the previous uh, short study, is that the heart of man is deceitful. And, and it often deceives its own owner, right? My heart deceives me from time to time. Um, and it's deceitfully wicked, like uh, Jeremiah says. So God searches the heart, and the Holy Spirit is going to help us in those difficult times when we need to com communicate what is on our heart to our Father God. The Holy Spirit is going to be our intercession. Now, we're going to get to Yeshua's role on searching the heart in a bit, but first, let's look at some of those other references where it, um, where Paul and other apostolic writers talk about God is the one who uh, is the one that searches the heart. So just look at some other passages real quick. Um, I didn't look, I, well, I suppose I should have uh, looked, told you about the Greek word. I, I, I'm, I'm remiss. Um, earlier on, we uh, talked about uh, which Greek word is uh, that which is tied to, um, uh, you know, in, in the Jeremiah passage, we looked at the uh, the, the Greek of, of um, the LSX, the, the Septuagint, ego kurias etazon kardias, and we looked at this Greek word right there and we noticed how this is a greek word that is one-to-one -one correspondence to the hebrew so it's the the greek translation of a particular hebrew word but when we get to romans 8 paul uses the same english word searches like we saw in um say the uh, jeremiah passage the lord i the lord search the heart so in the english it's the same but in the greek this time it's eraunun eraunun in the Greek, ha de eronon tas and uh, this phrase right here that I'm uh, highlighting on my screen, uh, and he who searches the hearts. Remember, we already saw how uh, this word cardias is where we get our English word cardiac. So it's him who searches the heart. And this Greek word uh, eronon, if I were to click on it, it's going to bring me to this Strong's number 2045. Er 
eunao, or eunao, is this Greek word here, and it's simply translated as search diligently or examine, according to Strong's Concordance. If we scroll down and look at Thayer's and Greek's um, lexicon, we get the same sense. It's to search or to examine or to search for, um, uh, to seek, um, to investigate, things like that. So it's a very generic word. It is not the same word as the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word that we looked at in Jeremiah. So it's not etazo. But as we've talked about, it doesn't really matter if it's not the same word because like any language, there are synonym words. So it's just a synonym word. This word eranon um, is a synonym word for the, uh, the other Greek word, which is etazo. So that's going to be okay for us. We don't need to know that it's the same word, and it doesn't always have to be the same word. Uh, it can be a synonym. So looking at some of the other cross-references as we close this um, uh, second section down, um, look at other places where Paul could have been referencing, where he talks about in Romans 8.27 that it's um, the one who searches the hearts. He could have pulled from Psalm 139, verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me, and known me. Perhaps that's what he's referring to. He could have pulled from Jeremiah 17.10. We already looked at that earlier. I, the Lord, search the heart. I examine the mind to reward a man according to his ways, according to his way, but what his deeds deserve. Um, we uh, Perhaps Paul pulled from uh, one of the sayings of Yeshua. So he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is prized among men is detestable before God. I don't know if that's Yeshua's saying, but it's definitely a passage out of the, um, uh, the Gospels. Probably Paul wasn't pulling from the Gospels just then, right there. I'm more likely to believe that he pulled from either the book of Psalms or the Jeremiah passage in his reference there. But we now have these cross-references on our own, and we can do these particular types of word studies. Um, and then the other um, passage uh, that is cross-referenced to this particular uh, verse is in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 24. And they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen. So the idea is that when we're talking about God the Father here, that's the, the, um, the list that we're looking at right now, and we'll move to the Son next. God the Father knows the heart. And it's just understood that God knows the heart because he's God. He's the one who created the heart of man. And even though man is deceived by his own heart from time to time, even though Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and just desperately sick who can understand it, guess what? God can. Why can God? Because he can search the heart. He is above uh, human weakness. And we're going to see how this plays out in regards to the Son as God the Son, second person of the Trinity, having the same ability to search the heart and the mind, by the way. He's gonna, we're going to use see both those terms. And then lastly, uh, when we get to it, we'll turn to the First Corinthians patches and see how it is the Holy Spirit who not only searches the heart, but he actually searches all things. So we'll get that at uh, in a moment. For But for now, that'll do it for looking at this second verse for uh, exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Okay, let's continue with our look into various verses that indicate that God has the ability to search the heart. We have God the Father searching the heart. Now let's turn to God the Son, who has who also has this ability to search either the heart or the thoughts or to know the inner parts of a man without that person telling them first. Um, 
Carm pulls in a verse out of the book of Revelation, which is um, the first verse that I want to look at. And then I want to show you how uh, there are other passages that we could have used to demonstrate this particular feature of the Bible as well. Revelation chapter 2 starting in verse 18, just to get the context of who's speaking, John writes, And to the angel of the church of Thi in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are burnished like bronze, or like burnished bronze. Of course, who's speaking? It says the words of the Son of God. The whole book is called the Revelation of Jesus Christ, right? The very first verse of Revelation 1, verse 1, talks about how this is the revelation of God uh, given to Jesus Christ. Um, so there's no mistake that the entire book really is the revelation of Yeshua. But just to be sure, in chapter 2, in this particular section, um, the angel... Uh, of the Church of Fire, uh, Yeshua says to John, uh, the words of the Son of God says this. And then with, with that, the context, uh, we drop down to the verse that um, Karm has in their table, which is actually uh, in verse 23 here, which reads, quote, And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that what? I am he who searches mind and heart. Here we have Yeshua confessing that he's the one who searches mind and heart. Now remember what we read in Jeremiah. Let's just jump back there again. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10, God says, God the Father says, I the, I the Lord search the heart and test the mind. Notice the two uh, parts of the inner parts of a man. Of course, this is just poetic parallelism. It's not that he can only search the heart and not test the mind, or he can't test the heart, but he can only search the heart, but he can't search the mind, or vice versa. Don't get hung up on the verbs there. This is a poetic way of explaining that God knows the inner thoughts of a man. The heart and the mind are just um, uh, two ways of indicating that which would ordinarily to, to mere mortals like us, be inaccessible, but not to God, because he is the creator of our very mind and our very decision-making processes. So that's how we can jump into the context of understanding that Yeshua is now in his resurrected body. This is post-resurrection, obviously, right? Written in the 90s when John was writing this letter. And so Yeshua is now demonstrating that he has the ability to know the heart. He can search the mind and the heart, something that is um, formally described as a feature that God himself has. Likewise, we could remind ourselves that there are other passages where Yeshua is demonstrating this ability to know the um, inner thoughts and inner uh, intentions of human beings, and he even does it prior to his resurrection body. Although, I think the uh, illustration that we're going to be looking at here in a second is probably indicative of knowing just that individual's mind at the moment. It doesn't seem to indicate that he, he has the same ability like God does, where he just knows the hearts of every human being, being simultaneously. But let's look at this real quick, and then we'll close our study for tonight for this particular section. In Matthew chapter 9, verse uh, 1, working our way down to the context of verse 4, we have this description where it says, Yeshua, getting into a boat, crossed over and came to his own city. Verse 2, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Looking at verse 3, 
And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. We talked about that in a different study where Yeshua is demonstrating his equality to his father by being able to forgive people. And the people, the, the, the religious leaders are picking up on that and saying, Hey, you're, you're acting like you're God the Father. You know, you're, you're forgiving people. But that's for a different study. For our study tonight, look at verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Jesus knowing their thoughts. Um, the Greek word for knowing is not the same word that we looked at earlier, uh, that we were looking at in the apostolic scriptures. It's a different word, eidos. But nevertheless, as we already talked about, searching the thoughts, searching the heart, and knowing the thoughts, these are synonymous terms that indicate that person A has insight into person B's inner thoughts when they ordinarily wouldn't have. I mean, I wouldn't know the thoughts of, an, of someone outside of myself. I'm not a mind reader, and I'm guessing those of you who are listening to my podcast and watching this YouTube video aren't either. But Yeshua demonstrates powers that normal humans don't have. Even in his incarnation, prior to being resurrected, he still demonstrates miraculous working power that links him back to God the Father. Remember, our core verse that we're keep working from is that the Lord searches the heart and tests the mind. God obviously can see inside of an individual, but Yeshua can do this too. Jesus knowing their thoughts. How about that? And then lastly for tonight, look at Luke chapter 9 verse 47. But Jesus knowing the reasoning of their hearts took a child and put him by his side. And he's uh, going to demonstrate uh, some other uh, teachings about um, receiving him, receiving the child, children, receiving his father, uh, and things like that. But uh, all we want to do is just look at the fact that uh, Luke describes Yeshua knowing the reasoning of their hearts. Again, it's the same Greek word that we just saw in Matthew, the uh, eidos. But um, nevertheless, Yeshua is demonstrating, and this is prior to being resurrected, this is his pre-resurrection body, he still demonstrates some ability that gives him a connection back to God the Father. And then, as I mentioned earlier, in closing, in Revelation, he demonstrates that he has the, the complete power that he had before the Incarnation. He can now know, he can now, he is he that searches the mind and heart, and of course this would apply to every human being that uh, he's speaking to. So that'll do it for this particular section on uh, exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity in regards to God the Son. Let's turn now to a look at God the Holy Spirit. Okay, we're finally ready to turn to the final um, column, which is going to address uh, how God the Holy Spirit has the same ability as God the Father and God the Son, and that he is able to search the heart, or in this case, the verse is going to tell us that he can search all things. So let's take a look at uh, the um, verse that Carm has provided for us in their chart, which is going to be 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. And let's back up to verse 9 to appreciate the context of what Paul's writing here. Here's what it says, quote, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And then from there we drop down into verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. How? For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So this is not too difficult to understand. It doesn't take a, a, a theologian to figure out that God... Um, 
God um, plans and uh, uh, orchestrates all of the events for humanity, but more specifically, God has glorious plans in store for those who have um, placed their faith in His Son, Messiah, Yeshua, and therefore He has this wonderful promise for us that we can't even uh, begin to fathom all that He has prepared for us in this life right now. We can only, uh, we, have, we get glimpses of it from the scriptures and things like that. But there's so much more that's waiting for us once we go to uh, dwell with Him eternally. Well, who does know what is uh, what's in the mind of God? Who who knows and is able to search out that which God is planning? Well, obviously God Himself. But according to what Paul is saying here, the Spirit can search everything even the depths of God. So the Spirit has the ability to search now. If this Spirit, the Holy Spirit, can search even the depths of God, then surely the Spirit can search the depths of a human. Meaning, the Spirit has the ability to search the heart and the mind, just like we read about in our um, kind of our chair passage that started this whole thing off. Jeremiah uh, 17 verse 10, the Lord searches the heart and tests the mind. And from there we launched into an understanding of how Yeshua also has the ability to um, uh, search the heart, uh, search the mind. Uh, what did we read in Revelation 2 verse 23? Um, Everyone will know, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. So God can search the heart and the mind. Uh, God the Father. God the Son can search the heart and the mind. And then finally, we read how it's the Holy Spirit who searches all things. Thus, he must be able to search the heart and the mind of a man as well. And so this is really the best way, as I keep mentioning over and over during these short little um, Trinity studies. Uh, you know, you should be familiar with the, my format by now. Um, most of you are probably even ready to move on to um, maybe a little bit uh, deeper wrangling of the scriptures. But let's continue to work our way through this um, table first, uh, just by looking at it as an overview Next week, we'll turn to uh, the fact that we belong to God the Father, God the Son. It doesn't show that we belong to the Holy Spirit in charts, in uh, Karm's chart, but maybe I'll come up with my own verse. We'll see if there's something I can find. And then we'll turn to how uh, God the Father, God the Son are the Savior. God the Holy Spirit should be absent from this list because he's not uh, portrayed in the Scripture as the Savior. And then as we drop down to the list, then we'll, there'll be four more left. Uh, we serve, we believe in... Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit gives joy. There's no li listing there for the Father, but I'm sure I could probably find a verse there. And then uh, Judges. God the Father judges, God the Son judges, and I don't expect to find a, a spirit verse for uh, God the Holy Spirit judging. But after that, then we'll be ready to move into the rest of our commentary. And as you can see on my list, I've got who or what is the Holy Spirit and commentary forthcoming. So we're working our way. We're getting there. All right. Just be patient and uh, continue to follow along with these studies. If you have any questions or comments about the studies, be sure to drop me a line in care of this particular uh, YouTube video series, my YouTube channel. Uh, be sure to subscribe. Be sure to hit the little bell. Be sure to um, give it a thumbs up. Be sure to leave comments and be sure to share the content with other people. Okay. Be blessed. Let's turn to our liturgy now for tonight. Um, 
We're going to start the liturgy off with the Omer count since we're in the middle of counting the Omer. And so the Omer uh, in Judaism, we count the Omer at night. And so the Omer count for Monday night, April 19th, 2021, is where we're at right now. So you can see I've got Chabad.org's Omer count liturgy pulled up. And we're just going to keep borrowing that as we work our way through the Omer. Let me read through the English here on this, this side of the screen. And then over on the right side of the screen or immediately above, there's some either Hebrew or transliterated Hebrew, whichever one you're more comfortable with reading. And then after that, um, I'll drop down into the page and I'll read this uh, blessing right here and then read the corresponding Hebrew on the right side of the page. So let's start right here. Uh, the English says, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us concerning the counting of the Omer. And the Hebrew corresponding reads, Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshanu B'Mitzvotayv Vitzivanu Al Sefirat HaOmer. Let's drop down a bit and continue uh, with our blessing. The English says, Today is 23 days, which is three weeks and two days of the Omer. And the Hebrew over on the right side of the page reads, Hayom Shlosha Ve'estrim Yom Shechem Shlosha Shavuot Ushnei Yamim La Omer. And that'll do it for the Omer Count Liturgy. Let's continue with our liturgy by looking at the prophets, the prophetic book of Ezekiel. We're going to just use this through our um, Omer Count, or we'll keep reading this, developing uh, the, the truths of this particular passage. We're reading Ezekiel chapter 36, since it's a promise of the outpouring of the Spirit on corporate Israel someday. And since during the counting of the Omer, we're working our way towards the Shavuot experience of celebrating the, the um, gift of Torah and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, then it's only fitting that we um, read passages, that read liturgy that's related to um, the giving of Torah and or the, the, the um, outpouring of the Holy Spirit and how it causes Torah observance in corporate Israel. So we read verse 22 last week. Uh, this week we'll just read verse 23. So we're just kind of reading one verse at a time. So starting right here on the side of the page, left side, the ESV reads, quote, And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when you, I'm sorry, when through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Notice Jew and Gentile are in view here. God has always had Jew and Gentile in view in salvation history. When he's bringing in the Abrahamic promises, when he's establishing the Mosaic covenant, when he's raising up the Davidic, Davidic dynasty, dynasty, and then bringing in the Messianic uh, promise and the, and the figure known as Yeshua. And so all of it fits together if we just continue to remind ourselves that it's never been a Jewish-only operation from the word go. The Gentiles are not plan B, they are plan A along with Jewish Israel. Israel is composed of Jews and Gentiles. Let's look at the... Um, uh, the uh, Hebrew over here on the right side of the page. The Hebrew says, Vakidashti et shmi hagadol hamhulal bagoyim asher chilaltem betocham vyadu hagoyim ki ani Adonai neum Adonai Adonai vahikadshi bachem vachem, I'm sorry, le'e nehem. And again, we'll keep looking at this. We'll just take it a verse by verse as we're working our way, counting our way, uh, um, uh, counting the Omer, working our way from Pesach to Pentecost, and we'll just keep using these passages. 
Let's turn now to Romans chapter 14, the verse, the uh, passage that we're studying in our Romans 14 study. We read verses 1, 2, and 3 last week. Let's just read verse 4 and 5 tonight, and that'll conclude for our, our um, uh, liturgy. And then right after the liturgy, we'll turn to the little video, and then right after the video, we'll close in prayer. Romans 14, verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Let's turn to the Greek over on the right side of the page. The Greek uh, verse 4 says, Su tis ehakrinun alatrion oikatein to idio kurio steke epipte stathesetai didunate garhokurias stesai auton. And verse 5 says, Has min garkrine himeran par himeran has dekrine pasan himeran hekastos into idio noi playrofereso. That'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Let's turn to the short little video and we'll watch the video on the book of Exodus. Uh, this is my name forever. And then once the video completes, we'll simply close and dismiss in prayer. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Welcome to A Minute or Two with the Word. I'm your host, Torah teacher Ariel, where every week or so, we take a look at a relevant passage of Scripture together as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. I want to talk about a somewhat sensitive issue today, God's personal name. We know from reading the Tanakh at over 6,000 places in the Hebrew that Yahweh is the name of our God. Some people pronounce his name as Yahweh, some say Yahweh, some say Adonai, and some even say Hashem, while others simply say Lord or just God. Does God care what we call him? I personally don't think he's put off by our particular different personal choices of nomenclature, especially since he is the one true God of all of us, regardless of our diverse linguistic backgrounds. The Bible does not teach that God's name is a magical formula that must be uttered along the lines of an exact set of syllables. God is above all of that nonsense. Therefore, I personally see no value in espousing to sacred name onlyism. And yet, God actually tells us his name in his word, and he wants us to remember this name throughout all our generations. I will close this short study with a reading of the ESV English and the Masoretic Hebrew side by side for you to examine for yourself. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Vayomer Elohim el Moshe, Eche asher Eche, Vayomer ko tomar, Livne Israel, Eche shalachni alechem. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Vayomer od Elohim el Moshe kol tomar el b'nei Yisrael, Yahweh Elohei avotechem, 
אלוהי אברהם, אלוהי יצחק ואלוהי יעקב, שלחני עליכם, זה שמי לעולם, וזה זכרי לדור דור. And that'll do it for the short little video for tonight. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. Thank you for the opportunity to share my thoughts with the students. I thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit here and among us, even though we're separated uh, physically uh, by di the distance of several thousand miles. I'm out here in Korea, and most of the students that I dialogue with on a weekly basis are either in America or in other countries in different parts of the world. But what a wonderful opportunity to be able to connect uh, through the medium of the internet and to bridge that gap, of course, by the, your very spirit, by the power of the truth of your words. Thank you for preserving your words for us and giving us that sure anchor, uh, that objective truth that we can um, rely on, that we can plan our lives around, that we can uh, uh, memorize and meditate on so that we can be comforted during these troublesome times. Lord, the political unrest and the, uh, the um, uh, what do we say, the uh, racial tension in our country, uh, all of the uh, the social injustice and, and the pandemic, add on top of that a pandemic. Lord, just uh, in America, I can say, I can't speak for all the other countries uh, because I'm an American, but um, things are just getting pretty tense and people are really losing their mind they're 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 losing control and uh yet we don't need to be people like that we have the sure promise is we have the sure promises of the bible we have the sure promise of messiah who's going to come and uh, um, rescue us one day but more than that we have the promise that he's with us right now his holy space is here his presence is with us god you are with us emmanuel god with us you have you have made your presence known to us and you have established your kingdom here on earth um, even though it's not yet fully actualized in seminal form it's already here by the power of the holy spirit so thank you lord that we can fellowship and that we can um, continue to strengthen ourselves by blessing one another and loving on one another and being a light and witness to those around us, to those people who um, don't know, people who are afraid, people who are, are fearful, people who are, are just throwing their hands up, people who are turning to other uh, ways to medicate the pain away, right? Um, you know, various forms of, of alcohol and drugs and violence and, and, and you know, all, all manner of activity that to, to escape the, 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 um, the, uh, the, the pain and the, the fear that's all around us today. Lord, of course, we know that this is leading us into um, the end time scenarios that we read about in the Bible where you're going to soon bring about your return before our very eyes and so that we can be with you and um, uh, make our abode with you. So continue to raise us up and protect us as families and communities and give us an awareness of the gospel um, responsibility of, of reaching out to people around us, not just saying, oh, well, too bad you don't have God, you don't have Messiah, but I do. You know, that's the wrong mentality. We need to have compassion on our friends and family members and neighbors and those around us who are struggling during these difficult times. Give us a heart to minister to them, witness to them, and give us the power to to overcome um, the, the, the fear uh, that would otherwise swallow us up as well. We'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Oh, 
That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.